If you take out your Bibles, we have the incredible privilege of starting a new book this morning. We're going to tackle next uh, the two letters that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. And as we do so, I would begin this way with you. For those of you that have children, and you made the mistake like Connie and I did of taking them to a museum uh, when they're like six, seven, eight years old, they kind of look at a museum and go, why don't we go see alive things instead of dead things? Amen? You know, it's like not really interested in bones and coffins and, you know, things like that. They were interested in touch. They would rather go to a petting zoo, amen, where they could touch something alive. Can I tell you that there are an awful lot of people in the world who look at the Bible much like little children look at museums? They look at the Bible as if it were some ancient book that has no relevance for today. They look at the Bible as though it were written a long time ago and by people who lived in a much different age and therefore they can't possibly have ever known, no matter who authored it, including the Holy Spirit, of what it'd be like to live today. That's the way a lot of people look at Scripture. Your Bible is alive. It is living. And the words it contain are sharper than any two-edged sword. It will divide between joint and marrow, between soul and spirit. It is God's instruction manual for us today. And it is as relevant today as it was when Paul authored these letters nearly 2,000 years ago. Amen? And so we have the privilege of now studying together what Paul wrote to a group of people who lived in a very carnal world, in a very prosperous city, the Greek city of Thessalonica. And as we turn our attention to the first three verses here in 1 Thessalonians, the first of the two letters, we find this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, To the church of the Thessalonians, or the saints at Thessalonica, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. Now, as the Apostle writes, remember where he now is. He's moving. uh, We've finished the prison epistles. We now move to the first of the letters that Paul writes from the Greek city of Corinth. And so as you look at a map today, uh, very much like it would have looked then, Uh, We live in a world of advanced scientific wonder. We live in a world of the internet. We live in the information age. We live in a day and time where it seems like somebody can come up with an idea and before you know it, it's tweeted around the world. Amen? It's amazing how much information comes so very, very, very quickly. That was not the world then, however. And the letters that Paul would author that would be circulated, they would go to various churches, which we've already looked at the 
letter to the church at Ephesus. We've looked at the letter to the church at Philippi. We've looked at the letter to the church at Colossae. And now we turn our attention to Thessalonica. These cities were all in Asia Minor. Uh, Philippi, not very far from Thessalonica, scant hundred miles. We're looking at churches that would have been communicated to in a physical way with an actual letter. And so these were real letters that were handed off to couriers. Those couriers would carry the letter. The letter would then be read in church. So very much like we're doing right now in reading this letter, they would have done the same thing from Paul, the apostle, and they would begin to read the letter. Now, in the case of all of Paul's writings, he was writing generally to a specific group of people in a specific environment with specific issues, very often doctrinal issues. Sometimes there were practical issues. Sometimes there were spiritual issues. Sometimes there were sin issues. But he was writing to a group of people to instruct them in the Lord. And so he does so with this particular letter, the letter to the church at Thessalonica. No book ever in the history of mankind is as timeless as this one. It still stands at the top of the bestseller list. Amen? More people own the Bible than any other book on the planet. And the words contained in it are unique. Because God, outside of time, outside of space that we live in, wrote into time and into space, into our time domain, eternal words that were good then and are still good today. And so what Paul faced in writing to the Thessalonians, we faced. They were a real people with real burdens, real cares, real concerns, with a real background, with a real history. They were real This is not some fake group of people. If if we were to write letters, we might think of, hey, let's write a letter to the the church that needs to be encouraged maybe in Hollywood. Seriously, think about it. Think about areas of the world that that are centers that have great influence over the entire world. Can you imagine what it would be like today to maybe think about some other people group that should be written to? Well, let's encourage them in their faith. And so Paul encourages us in our faith with this letter. Let me give you a little history and a little background because it's very important. This was an extremely important Roman port city at the time. And as such, it was a center of trade. It was on... Uh, the Ignatian Way, it, it stood as a thoroughfare uh, to most of the world's commerce. If you were traveling uh, from Asia Minor, from what is modern-day Turkey, and you were coming through Macedonia and then through Greece to get to Rome, this was one of the cities you would have stopped at. At the time, the population was probably a couple hundred thousand people. Today, it's around 340, 350,000 people. Uh, It's a significant port city to this day. As as you're sitting in the city of Thessalonica, you're looking directly at Mount Olympus. Across the Aegean Sea to the other side, you, you can be in the city and look directly across at the place that the ancient Greeks 
worshipped the Greek pantheon. They were believed to live at the top of snowy Mount Olympus. And so this is a place that was very high on the order of Greek importance. It was then taken over by the Romans. It was named after the half-sister of Alexander the Great, married to one of Alexander's generals. And so it has a rich and a deep history. It was second only to Athens in importance in the Greek world then, and it is second only to Athens in importance to this day, 2,000 years later. This is a place of influence. But it was also a place of deep carnality, incredible sinfulness, specifically promiscuity, involved in the temple worship of Diana, who was the goddess of the Ephesians, but had her roots in Greece. It was a culture that was immersed in immorality. And I would say to you, when you look at our culture today, we are immersed in immorality. It is hard to watch television today. My son Austin and I were watching the History Channel yesterday. And it's like, seriously, you need to sell life insurance with sexuality. You need to sell candy bars with sexuality. You need to sell children's toys with sexuality. You need to sell movies geared towards children with sexuality. We live in a culture that is immersed in sexuality. That was the Greek culture. It was also the Roman culture. It was the Macedonian culture. Oh, by the way, it's pretty much been the end of every culture. And so it's timeless. It speaks to us today. This was a church that was struggling with its own identity to some degree. How do we, in this world that we live in, continue to live godly in Christ Jesus when we are faced with so much temptation to sin? It's hardly anywhere that you can go, hardly anyone that you can talk to, aside from people in the church, that your mind is not going to be assaulted. What do we do? How do we live our lives? I would remind you that Acts chapter 17 explains to us how Paul came to Thessalonica. And so join us on Sunday nights. We're studying through that book. We're only in chapter 8. So you can come and find out the history of the church. How Paul ended up in all of these places. But in Acts 16, Paul and Silas, Timothy arrive in Philippi. Uh, You know the story of the Philippian jailer, amen? It is there that that Philippian jailer is led to Christ. God delivers them, but, but they headed for the important city. After Philippi, they headed to Thessalonica. They bypass a couple of smaller cities, Apollonia and Amphilus. And as they passed those cities, it's not because they didn't matter. It's because Paul had a very specific plan that he used throughout his time in ministry, and it's very important. He went where he could have some impact initially. And so for Paul, being a Jew who's going to reach the Gentiles, the first place he always went was to the synagogue. 
because there in the synagogue he could use the Old Testament scriptures to present the risen Christ. He would take the messianic word that's contained within the Old Testament and say, look, we've known about this King of Kings, this Lord of Lords. We've known about the Son of Man. Daniel spoke of him. Isaiah spoke of him. And I have seen him. And so he would begin that way. And then because those Jews in this Grecian culture would have friends, much like you have friends that don't know the Lord. Much like you have influence over people who do not know God. And so when we meet together and we share the word, it gives you an opportunity to take the word, this kernel, this seed, back to that place where you exist, and you then can speak into people's lives from your life experience. And so Paul begins by getting the word out to people who are likely to receive it because he could talk to them from a common understanding of the Old Testament. You have to find common ground with people. You can't walk up to people and, and you know, hit them in the face with the gospel and expect them to understand. You need to find out where they're at, what's going on in their life. You need to make some small talk with people generally in order to get to the place to where they will trust you to talk about eternal things. Paul was great at this. So much so that we see him even able to talk to atheists in a sense because he would open the door of the gospel. And so he does that with this particular group. And so he travels from Philippi about 100 miles to Thessalonica. And it is there that he begins his church planting. Now Paul had a very specific way that he generally went about these things. And I would encourage you, if you want to turn there to Acts 17. Just a couple of verses I would share with you, verses 2 through 4. And it says there, then Paul, as was his custom... So it says there in Acts 17 that Paul had a custom of how he went about initially planting churches. And there are three things that we want to draw attention to. For three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now what scriptures would he have available? It's not the New Testament, amen? It's the Old Testament, Very often people think that the gospel is only contained in the New Testament. No, the gospel is contained in the Old Testament as well. It is hidden there in the Old Testament prophetic work. It is hidden there in the revealing of the King of Kings, the Messiah of old. But it is there, the scarlet thread that is the redemptive thread of God's plan from Genesis to Revelation is clearly seen to anyone who wishes to look at it in the Old Testament. So the first thing, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating. He expositorily taught them from the Old Testament scriptures that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I look at the third thing, I preach to you, is the Christ, the anointed one. He is Yeshua HaMashiach. He is the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament of the Jews. And so the Jewish people, having the world's oldest monotheistic religion, are kind of walking around town going, man, there's this weird guy, Paul the Apostle, who came into our synagogue, and he's reasoning to us from the Old Testament. He went to the book of Moses. 
And so it stimulates people to get talking about it. And it was there that some were persuaded and a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, that would have been brand new news in that culture. The leading women. It wasn't for men only, it was for the ladies as well. The women began to reason for themselves. We find these incredible women like Priscilla who may possibly, shockingly to some of you, she is one of the top candidates in my list of those who may have authored the book of Hebrews. Might be the Apostle Paul, we don't know. But it was Priscilla that instructed Apollos. Greek culture. Hebrew roots. They joined Paul and Silas. Look at the three things. First, he reasoned. It means to have a discourse with. It means to talk to someone at a level of dialogue that they can understand and get engaged in the conversation. If you want to share people the good news of the gospel, you need to reason with them. You need to dialogue with them. You need to talk to them. Paul did that. The second thing, to demonstrate or to allege, literally means to lay alongside. In other words, here's the scriptural truths. Here's the things that come from them. Let's work through and demonstrate how this leads to eternal life. And then the third thing. He preaches. That means to proclaim. Look, I've got a message. This isn't about religious talk. You see, a lot of people believe that you go to church to talk about religious things. No, we go to church to reason together in studying God's word to lay things line on line, precept on precept, so that ultimately our lives preach the gospel, which is the gospel of God unto salvation to them who believe. Amen? There's a point to us living our lives as Christians. It's not just for your benefit, it is for the benefit of the whole world. You are messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is sharing these things with this church that is in a very pagan city where they can then be the agents that will come alongside and reason with others and demonstrate with others and preach to others. It's a very simple thing. We need to keep it simple, family. It's a good thing to have programs. We have lots of them. It's a good thing to have all kinds of wonderful ministries. And we have lots of them here at Calvary Chapel South Bay. More than 40 different ministries. But our primary goal is to reason with people from the scriptures to demonstrate the truths that are contained within them so that we might preach the gospel so that men can be saved. Amen? That's what church is for. Now in the process, we all grow in Christ. In the process, uh, prayerfully we'll do mighty works for the Lord that uh, he alone has purposed in our hearts. But our primary function is to see other people come to faith in Christ. That's his desire, that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of repentance. And so Paul begins this work in Thessalonica. And there's some lessons that we can learn from this letter. First and foremost, and most encouraging to all of us, 
God uses people. Amen? Frail, faulty, fallible, sometimes phony and fake that God's working in. And isn't it weird how the Lord can take, it seems like, the most ill-equipped, the, the most underrated. I mean, God's, God's, He finds the one person that everyone misses in the draft. Amen? Isn't it weird, especially like in basketball, all of a sudden they'll be, it's like, who is that guy? Well, he played at, you know, St. Joseph's High School in Missouri somewhere, and no one's ever heard of him, but he's, you know, one of the top scorers in the NBA. God finds those people, and all of a sudden begins to work in those gifts that they have. And before you know it, boom, there they are. I can name a few Pastor Chuck Smith. Pastor Steve Mays, Pastor Greg Laurie, every last one of them losers before they met Jesus. They would tell you that, by the way. Right? Drug addicts. Pastor Chuck was pastoring a church of 20 people when God began to work in his life. He was not on the fast track to make a churchdom, okay? Okay? God gave him a vision, gave Kay a vision to minister to those people that no one was ministering to. Didn't take the best and the brightest, took the most available and said, I'm going to impart something special to you. We need to remember God uses people. Don't delete your name from the list because God wants to use you as well. Amen? Second lesson, the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. Amen? The same way that we got saved, everyone gets saved. It's the gospel. It's that good news. It's that blessed news. Not just in word only, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to see in verse 5. You see, it didn't require all kinds of time and years and all these things to to build this church up. God simply did it by his own power. You know, sometimes we complicate the ministry by putting up so much structure that people can't get out and do the work of the ministry. One of the things that I have always loved about Calvary Chapel is there isn't a whole lot of external structure. You can actually hear from the Lord and actually go do something instead of put it into committee for 10 years. Those people are dying without Jesus. Can we go share the gospel with them? Well, no, we don't have, you don't have the right papers. You don't see that in Scripture. Now, I'm not dismissing great instruction. I'm not dismissing Bible college. I'm not dismissing seminary. Say it doesn't work. It isn't good. I'm simply saying that if the structure overrides the work of the Holy Spirit, dump the structure. You listen to God and go do what God calls you to do. I've seen the most unlikely people used in in the most wonderful ways. The very first mission trip that Calvary Chapel as a whole did into Eastern Europe, I happened to be on with my brother Mike Harris, and we're in Yugoslavia, war-torn Yugoslavia. We're driving by bombed-out tanks, and we are a bunch of knuckleheads. None of us have a brain between us. 
But Mike stayed in Hungary, in Yugoslavia, and from that grew all of the churches that are Calvary chapels all over Eastern Europe. We didn't know what we were doing. Matter of fact, you could probably look at it and go, okay, let's get a list of people we shouldn't send, and we'd all have been on that list. Well, don't send Jeff, don't send Mike, don't send Rob, don't send them. Who can we get? Let's get somebody who's really gifted at ministry. God's looking for the available. Remember that. Another thing, Satan is still opposing the work of God. Amen? When you see discouragement, that's from the enemy. When you see critical spirit, that's from the enemy. When you see people who can't be rejoicing and someone else is doing well, that is from the enemy. The enemy still tries to discourage the work of God. We are an unexplainable phenomenon to the world as far as Calvary Chapel is concerned. We do not make any sense to the rest of biblical Christendom. Why? Because they ask us, well, how do you do this? And how is it that these churches grow like this? And we just tell them, well, we teach the God. We, we teach the word of God. We worship the Lord and we pray. No, come on, tell us the real story. No, that's it. They're like, well, well you can get that from the Bible. We go, exactly. And people look at it like, well, there's got to be, you've got some kind of, no, there really isn't. There's just a bunch of knucklehead, useless guys that actually believe that God still does miracles. And he still uses people. He still uses people. There's still just one gospel. And there's still just one word. And we need to teach his word. You do that, the enemy's coming against it. The purpose for these letters are very easy. He, he wants to assure these believers. They're, they're in a messed up world. And he's sending them assurance. Look, God's got this. Families, we go through these letters. These are, these are two very encouraging letters because God's got this. God has you. God has us as a church. God has this world still in the palms of his hands. And sometimes in the face of our difficulties and our trials and our troubles and our tribulations, the things that we go through at work and with our children, the things that we go through financially and mentally and spiritually, the stuff that we go through, sometimes we're tempted to believe God's not even with us anymore. This letter reminds us that he is with us. And furthermore, he's coming back. Amen? That is our blessed hope of our glorious appearing of our great God and King. Amen? We live in that imminent understanding that Jesus could take his church home right now. I would love it if Jesus would finish this message. Sky opens up, we're out of here, okay? So we need to live our lives like that. We need to wander around. Man, is he coming today? Don't do that while you're driving, though, because you can crash. <laughs> but you should be thinking that way. It's like, man, the Lord could come today. But so many Christians are going, man, I'm just going to have to eke out an existence. And I'm not actually mocking you. I've thought those things myself. Like, Lord, why'd you leave me here? Because there is a glorious hope that he's coming again. 
Oh, and brothers and sisters, we need to cling to that hope. In those days when you don't know what in the world's going to happen, we know who's going to make it happen. Amen? Amen? And so we cling to Jesus in that time. A second thing, he, he just wants to ground them in their faith. You know, so very often we kind of we feel like, oh, you know, it's like, how are we going to get through this? And you ever notice how the Lord just brings you somebody to kind of help you with that one particular thing in your life? I get the privilege of doing that very often. It's such a joy to see the light bulb spiritually go on. It's like, oh, okay. Now I understand. Yeah, I'm actually the elect of God. That's a hard thing to understand. But you get somebody, it's like, oh, God actually selected me. Yep, he sure did. And he also caused you to believe in him. So those two things work together. And people go, oh, wow. Paul's going to do that for us. He's also going to clear up some confusion in these letters. You see, the Christians then, as Christians are today, were confused about the rapture and the return of the Lord. Two totally separate events. And I want to make it really clear. There are well-intentioned, wonderful men and women of God who hold a different view of these things than I do or we do as Calvary Chapel. But I believe Scripture fully, completely teaches that there is an imminent rapture of the church that could happen at any moment. And at the same time, it also teaches that Jesus is coming back and he is going to rule and reign on this earth. Paul clears those things up. He writes about the rapture in the first letter and the second coming in the, in the second letter. And so he clears up these two doctrinal positions that the church has been haggling over for years. For decades, for millennia, there was a confusion about those things. And the questions were real. You see, they were living at a time when Jesus had just exited the planet. Amen? And so their friends are now 50, 60 years old. They're starting to die off. And they're like, well, what happens to them? And so Paul clears up that question. He said, and one day, we who are alive and remain will meet him in the air And the dead in Christ will rise. And so he says, look, everybody's covered. And so we get that here in these marvelous letters to the church at Thessalonica. He also gives us the difference between these things. And and the letters that Paul writes to the church... He, he writes, and, and you can imagine, he explains it. And if you were an Old Testament scholar, or maybe you read the book of Daniel, and then you followed that, and you knew about Joel's prophecy and the prophe- prophecies of Zechariah, and you're studying these things, it's like, man, someday the wrath of God's going to be poured out on this world. They're all thinking, I hope I don't have to go through that. And so he says, you're right. No, you've been rescued from the wrath of God. And, and so there's that encouragement in there. And so these letters are specific, just like all the letters had a specific reason. He, so he clears up this concept, this thought that's taught throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, the day of the Lord. That time that is talked about in a general sense that God is going to finish the age of grace. And so he clears all those things up. Tribulation, the second coming. You see, some of them thought they were already in it. But when you start reading the Bible, go, well, that's never happened. That's never happened. That hasn't happened. This still hasn't happened. We're still waiting for that time. And then he says, oh, good news? You're not going through all that stuff. I've rescued you from that. The book of Romans, 
emphasizes the righteousness of God. 1 Corinthians, the wisdom of God. All of the letters, 2 Corinthians, the comfort of God. All of the letters had a specific tone to them. The special message of this one, the rapture of the church, followed by the second coming of the Lord. Great encouragement to the church. The doctrine of imminency, in other words, the imminent return of the Lord. Pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, pre-wrath, taken up of the church. And I love that. Because you know what? I'm not interested in going through the tribulation. There are people that go, well, we deserve it. I always agree with them. I say, you're right. I do deserve to go through it. But because I'm one of God's kids, he said he's promised me that he's not appointed me unto wrath, us unto wrath, the church unto wrath, but rather unto righteousness by grace and through faith. And man, when you live that way, you can pretty much get through anything. Amen? You think about it. There, there's, a, there's a little bit of an outline through this particular first letter. He, he deals with a whole bunch of doctrinal issues, and we'll cover these. He talks about salvation. He talks about assurance. Anybody want to be assured that you're going to heaven? We're going to get there. Anybody want to win people to Christ? Happens in chapter 2. You want to serve the Lord? Chapter 2. You want to have some stability in your walk with the Lord? Anybody need that? We got that in chapter 3. Anybody need strength in sorrow or difficulty? Oh boy, this book's for you. How about how to live a sanctified life, a saintly life, a set-apart life? Anybody need that? Chapter 5. You see, there's incredible pictures of how the Lord works in our lives, and they're beautiful for us. Remind yourselves that you can go on the website. You can actually download these slides. They don't cost you a thing. They're there for free. So if you want any of these things, you're more than welcome to take pictures of them while they're up there. But you can get them. You can just download them, and they'll actually already be in PowerPoint format, and you can steal them. (laughs) Use them for your own home study. No, they're there for you. They're there for your growth. We want you to know God's word here at Calvary Chapel South Bay. That's why the CDs are free. That's why we have a YouTube channel. All those things are for you. They're for you to point other people to. Maybe you can't, you don't have a firm grip on the rapture of the church. You can just say, hey, Pastor Jeff just did a message on that. Why don't you go watch it? It'll take them 30 minutes and go, oh, rapture of the church, got it. Now, probably won't get it quite that quick, but they're there for you. So as you look at these two letters, They're very, very different. In 1 Thessalonians, Christ comes in the air for his church. In 2 Thessalonians, Christ comes to the earth with his church. That's very different, amen? One's in the air, one's on the earth. One's for and one's with. Very different. One is sudden. The rapture of the church is sudden. could come at any moment. The other is a part of a crisis that's clearly described. Throughout much of the Old Testament prophetic works that God one day is going to say, enough. The land is my land. I gave it to my chosen people, Israel, and you messed with them and the land and me. And so I'm coming back. I'm going to square all that away. That's a difficult thing, but it is predicted. As far as the rapture in in 1 Thessalonians, it could occur any day, any hour, any moment, including right now today. 
as far as the second coming of the Lord, there's a whole bunch of things that Scripture says has to happen beforehand. Chief among them is Israel has to be back in the land. That happened in 1948. So until 1948, there was zero possibility that the Lord would snatch away his church and then follow it with the second coming because Israel was not back in the land speaking a single language. The Valley of Dry Bones had not been raised up. So there are specific things still yet to happen, including an attack of Russia from the north on Israel in the south joined with a whole bunch of Arab neighbors that will come against the children of Israel. That hasn't happened yet. So I'm pretty sure the wrath of God is not upon us yet. Praise the Lord. One is called the day of Christ. The other is called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the time of God's judgment. The day of Christ is the time of his salvation. One is the age of grace. The other is the time of wrath. They're very different events. And so we'll see these in these two books. In light of all that, we get to live here and now in the light of his coming. We get to live in the here and now with the gospel of grace. We get to live in the here and now with the power of God's word and the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have that to share. And while we may disagree with a handful of people about the order of these things, here's something we can agree on. Jesus is coming soon. Amen? So we live in that light. Would you stand and let's pray together. Father God, we are grateful this morning. Oh, how grateful we are, God, that the free gift of eternal life is available to anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. That you saw us as the beloved, Lord, before we were ever created. Lord, you saw Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to this world as fully God and yet fully man to die for us. And we pray that we would live in the light of your soon coming. Lord, that we'd be excited about every day because every day is truly a new day. Every day is an opportunity for us to tell others about you. Every day is a day that might be our last day, Lord. And so with that wonderful expectancy, not knowing the day or the hour, but absolutely knowing the truth that it will happen. We look for you, Jesus. Help us to serve you. Help us to bless you. Help us to walk with you, Lord, all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen.